Welcome to What's Not Priced In, a weekly investor podcast by Fattail Investment Research. In a world of confusion and rapid change, experts Kirill Prakopenka and Greg Canavan look behind the headlines to unveil the hidden opportunities within the Australian stock market. Now, let's dive into today's episode. This week, we didn't talk about AI, but we did talk about the limits of monetary policy, whether coal stocks are attractive or present a value trap, the risk of the market not pricing in a hit to corporate earnings, Greg's charts of the week, and why commodities are still appealing on a long-term basis. Hello, and welcome back to the second episode of What's Not Priced In, where Greg and I explore what the market has already discounted, but more importantly, what it hasn't yet. Now, this podcast is driven by one overarching question, a question we'll keep asking over and over again. And that question is, is this already priced in? Now, you know, a story may be interesting, a story may be trending, but the right question to ask is whether the story's implications are already being priced in by the market. You know, has the market already incorporated the story? For example, AI is taking over the world. That's an interesting story, but move on. It's already priced in. NVIDIA is the hottest stock in the world right now. Forget about it. Ship's already sailed. Uh, that said, each week, we'd like to start by sort of quickly reviewing the stories that we found interesting. And when we talk about those stories, we'll have the one question firmly in mind, you know, is this already priced in? But also, what's the market overlooking? Now, with that said, I'll turn to Greg. Greg, welcome. Kirill, g'day, mate. And it's a really good uh, point you make, I think. Uh, one of the things that I always try to focus on when I'm reading the financial pages, when I'm looking at the headlines, is what does this mean for the pricing of the securities that are involved? And it takes some time to get used to it, but eventually when you start to recognize trends or uh, the way that sentiment is expressed in articles, in headlines, then you get a better sense of, yes, this is all bad news, this is all horrible, but it's in the price and therefore there's quite potentially an opportunity because what's not priced in is the flip side of things perhaps not being bad as expected yeah. or in the case of uh, NVIDIA and AI that you just mentioned, what's not priced in is perhaps a return to reality and rational thinking in that, yes, there might be some competitive threats that come down the track and, and erode yeah. some of those big gains that are being priced in. So really a uh, good intro, mate, because the whole point of this is to sort of ask what's priced in, what's not priced in, and get people looking at areas that may be a little more overlooked. And that tends to be where the opportunities are. Yeah. It's also the most interesting part of the market anyway. The most fertile ideas probably come where the market isn't looking or where the market has sort of mispriced some things. But I guess I'll start with you. And um, I want to ask, you, you know, what have been the biggest stories in your mind? What have you been looking at this week? I think uh, the biggest story from my perspective has been the macro story and of of uh, inflation and interest rates in Australia. Uh, the RBA, or sorry, the inflation numbers came out midweek, suggesting that inflation is picking up a little bit. I know the underlying number uh, continued to fall, but the headline number, and as you pointed out to me during the week, the trimmed mean number that the RBA looks at did pick up, uh, which turn the market into thinking there wouldn't be a rate rise uh, in June, which is uh, uh, next on, on Tuesday. Uh, 
to increasing the, the the chance of a rate rise. So it's gone from almost zero percent chance of a rate rise to around when I looked at it early this morning, was the market was predicting about a twenty two percent chance mm. of a rate rise, which still suggests the probability is that they'll stay on hold. Uh, but the market reaction, I thought, was quite telling, uh, and the ASX 200, the banks, they all dropped quite sharply. And when I look at the yield curve, uh, the uh, the yield curve, which is the difference between the two-year bond yield and the 10-year bond yield, that has now come down to just under two basis points. So it's effectively a flat yield curve and very... Yeah. Uh, near on the cusp of inverting, uh, and you know most listeners will probably know that an inver inverted yield curve yield yield curve is the bond market's way of saying, look, the economy is slowing sharply, and it's starting to price in a recession because it's not usual for a two-year bond yield to be higher than a ten-year bond yield. So it's really the longer-term bond yield saying. The economy is going to slow. Inflation is going to come out of the economy, and quite possibly there will be a recession. So, if you look at the yield curve six months ago, the the difference between the two and the ten year was around was nearly fifty basis points, and mm. it's now come down to being flat. So, bringing that back to the biggest story of the week, I think the market's saying to the RBA: if you raise rates, if you continue to raise rates, it's really going to start hurting. Yeah. Uh, it's really going to, because the economy is already slowing. And one thing that we often talk about is the lagged effect of monetary policy. And th those lags are still going to play out this year. So even if the RBA stays on hold from here, you're still going to get the lagged impact of last year's and, and early this year's rate rises coming through for the remainder of the year. Mm. So I think, yeah, the market was saying if you continue to raise rates, uh, it is really going to start hurting. Um, the banks, the the ASX 200 bank index fell about 6.5% throughout the month of May. So clearly the banks are adjusting to this slower economic environment and, and the outlook for weaker economic growth. And I think the other thing to bring into that is the news that house prices are rising again. Yeah, And there's a certain... Uh, element of the market that thinks, oh, okay, the RBA has to slow this down. But anyone who's looked at the Aussie housing market or been involved with it for a while, you know, knows that monetary policy has a certain amount of impact, but it's really more to do with the lack of supply. Yeah. And we, uh, you know, we've got a, a really terrible structural situation in the Aussie housing market at the moment. We need a lot more supply. Builders are going out of business, record yeah. bankruptcies over the past few months. Costs are rising massively. So anyone on a fixed price contract that they entered into cannot meet those commitments and is going out of business. So, you know, supply is a massive issue and that's just on the building side. And then you've got the permitting and the approvals mm -hmm. and a lot of that's handled by local governments. And to be honest, local governments are not... Uh, try and put this nicely, they're not in the position to um, to to manage Australia's housing supply crisis. Uh, yeah, I might just leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, um, you yeah, did so mention supply and I think I think Philip Lowe of the RBA, he was at an estimates, budget estimates hearing, I think yesterday, and he did mention supply was a big issue when, um, when he was... Um, prodded by the senators about the rental crisis and also the rising 
house prices. And I think he's he gets a lot of flack, but I think in this instance he was saying there's so much that the RBA can do. It's sort of restricted to to monetary policy. And he was saying if you do want to fix rental crisis, if you want to fix uh, you know the ballooning house prices, you just sort of have to focus on supply instead of necessarily what Philip Lowe is doing on in Sydney. Yeah, I, th- I think it it's a couple of things. Politicians generally outsource a lot of stuff to the RBA. And to my mind, housing is such a huge uh, problem that goes across all levels of government that no one really knows how to solve it. So they're just yeah. saying, look, the RBA, um, that's your domain. Uh, can you fix that? And going back to what I mentioned earlier, if the market thinks that the RBA has to solve the housing problem, then interest rates are going to continue going up. Yeah. That's not going to fix anything. It's just going to push the economy into a, into a bigger hole. So, you know, perhaps that was part of Wednesday's sell-off reaction as well when the, the news of rising house prices came out along with the rising inflation. And then you throw in the fact that energy prices are going up by 20% mm-hmm. across the board starting uh, next month, which is going to feed into... Uh, you know, further inflation. So similar to what we mentioned last week about what's not priced in, it's the fact that central banks will probably have to stay on hold for much longer than expected and will have Mm -hmm. a, even if you see a slowing in the economy, they're going to have less width to cut interest rates. And in the past, when inflation wasn't sticking and inflation wasn't a problem, they could pivot pretty quickly and, and reduce interest rates and and get the monetary um, liquidity flowing back into the into the system. But this time around, uh, you know, it's not going to happen. So that's going to continue to be a headwind for, mm. uh, for prices for some time, I think. Yeah. Well, I have a question. What do you think is is the is the peak in interest rates for Australia? Do you think we've sort of hit the peak or is there somewhere to go? Uh, if I had to guess, I'd say the probability suggests we'd probably – uh, be on hold from here. Uh, if you look at those indicators coming from the bond market, which says the Aussie economy is slowing quite sharply, the RBA would have to be looking at that, you would think, and say, mm-hmm. well, you know, because they have acknowledged that monetary policy acts with a lag and they have yeah. acknowledged that, you know, they need to sit back and, and, and wait and see. Of course, that all depends on further inflationary readings. Uh, but one of the one of the ironies of, of higher inflation is when things like energy and fuel costs come through and push inflation up, often that's a, that's a supply side issue and, mm-hmm. and the Reserve Bank manages the demand side. So by crushing demand and not sorting out supply, which is the same as in the housing market, you're just making things worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, and this is where it comes down to you know, we just don't have competent governments anymore. We don't have, on both sides of the political aisle, we've just got, um, yeah, really incompetent bureaucrats who are not interested in in genuine reform. Uh, if you look at, you know, all the spending that's going on in the uh, in, in in the fiscal budget that came out uh, a couple of months ago, uh, it's huge amounts of spending, no real reform. And, you know, that's not really going to fix anything. So if if the RBA stays on, uh, doesn't raise rates further, then 
as I said, I think they'll be hamstrung in trying to reduce rates, even though you're going to get signs of, of an economic slowdown. And just looking at the banks, you can you can tell there's a slowdown going on. Consumer discretionary stocks have all started to uh, to break down from a charting perspective. They were looking reasonably good a couple of months ago, and just mm. in this past month, they've really started to to hurt. And maybe partly that's because these fixed rates are starting to roll off and we're starting to see people uh, on fixed rate mortgages move into the variable rate, which is really yeah. uh, hurting their incomes. So that's a big thing. You pointed out last week that students are getting smashed on their hex because of the high inflation rates. Yeah. So I think all these things are starting to flow through and and really have an impact on people's ability to spend. Uh, and that's, that's going to have a big, big impact. And then you throw in uh, falling iron ore and coal prices uh, natural gas prices, which have been very beneficial for the trade, uh, the trade situation. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of headwinds at the moment. Yeah, definitely. And we'll get into the commodities later on in, into the episode. Yes. Uh, I think from, from my end, my, I think story of the week, and it's sort of been a, a story, I think for the last maybe few weeks and maybe a few months anyway. Um, and b- before I get into the story, I'll just start off with, with, uh, this uh investor called bob farrell maybe some some viewers have heard of him maybe not and he he studied under ben graham and david dodd and they're obviously the authors of security analysis uh, something that they you know the fathers of value investing anyway he was on wall street for for decades and he sort of distilled his experience into these 10 rules of investing and the the rule that i want to talk about is the seventh rule and it says that Markets are strongest when they are broad and weakest when they narrow to a handful of blue chip names. Now, that definitely sounds familiar for anyone who's listening because, especially in the US, it's been dominated by a handful of blue chip names and, and can literally, literally a handful. It's like you can count it on two hands. Uh, for example, the S&P 500, which is up about 10% this year, would actually be down for the year without the contribution of only eight of the largest 10 uh, tech stocks. So, uh, I think that's the story for me. Uh, I, f- I just find it quite fascinating that the tech rally has been so prominent, but it's been so concentrated, uh, so condensed to just a, a tiny amount of stocks. And so I sort of want to ask you, is this, you know, is this a bad thing? Is this a bad omen? Or is this just something normal that, you know, indexes just the way that they compose, they usually are going to be dominated by the, by the largest companies. I think if you're a passive investor investing in the S&P 500 or uh, the NASDAQ and, and you just want to get access to an index that's going up, I think it's probably bad news. I think if you're a stock picker, it doesn't really matter. If And, and this is where... This is where having this discussion is really interesting because you can you can point to all these all these things and say, okay, well, um, you know, the, the bond the bond market's pricing in a slowdown. Commodity prices are coming off. Under the surface, a lot of stocks have already priced in a lot of bad news, mm. and and there is a bear market going on for a lot of stocks underneath the surface. But because capital has concentrated into these largest names, the indexes aren't really reflecting. The underlying weakness. So, if you're a stock picker, there's a lot of really good value stocks out there. I'm not saying it's you know the depths of a bear market, but there's plenty of opportunities that you can look at and say, okay, well that's a reasonable price to pay. We're not talking about you know two thousand level 
valuations where mm. <clears throat> everything was crazy and it was just really difficult to to find good value stocks. So, um, you know, from that perspective, I, I don't think the market is all that mispriced. There, there are, mm. and especially in Australia, there are mispricings, yeah. obviously, in, in, in the US and I, and we've got some charts to show uh, a, a little bit later that shows the divergence between, you know, the headline indices and, and the internals of the market, which I think is going to be quite interesting to look at. Um, but, I, but I think there's, there's good opportunities underlying the market. And sometimes if you focus too much just on the mm. indices, then you're going to miss those opportunities because you might say to yourself, you know, come back and wake me up when the market falls 30%. Yeah. Um, which is fine, but at that point you might see capital recycle into these undervalued names mm. from the big caps, which will push them up. And then the big caps just come back, back down to a, say a fair value. And yes, the index might be down a bit, but you could have had the opportunity to outperform that index by, mm. you know, looking at, looking at names now. So yeah, it's a, it's a difficult thing to communicate because the index doesn't represent, um, doesn't represent all the stocks in the market. Well, it does represent the stocks, but it doesn't paint the picture of every stock. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I think for a stock picking uh, market, this is a pretty good one. Yeah, and I think I'm always reminded of of something that you've said. It's it's not. Don't think of it as a stock market. It's a market of stocks. So there's, there will always be opportunities. Um, you don't have to be like, oh, the macroeconomics are bad. I'm just going to not invest for a year and wait for things to to get better, there's always going to be opportunities out there if you're a skilled stock picker. Absolutely. And I think one of the things, sorry, I was just going to say one of the things that I'm focusing on more on now is buying undervalued stocks that have got Mm. healthy dividend yields because, you know, the market may struggle for another six months. It may struggle for another 12 months. But if you're getting a healthy income stream while you're waiting for that re-rate, then, you know, that's a, that's a, in my mind, that's a better long-term strategy than than sitting in cash. Of course, cash has got optional uh, optionality value. If you mm. keep a portion of your portfolio in cash and wait for those opportunities, that's fine. I'm certainly doing that in my own super fund. Uh, but in terms of being out of the market 100%, waiting for that index to fall, whatever your magic number is, uh, I think that's that's probably a, a pretty tricky or a dangerous strategy to follow. Yeah. Well, you mentioned dividend stocks and dividend yields, and uh, I think now we're going to turn to to our stocks of the week segment. And there are some doozy high dividend dividend yields that we're going to talk about. Uh, yeah. So the the stocks of the week are going to be a sector, and it's going to be cold stocks. And I'll just basically just give a brief rundown of the performance of a couple, just yep. to give an example. So Whitehaven Coal is down about thirty five percent year to date. It's trailing dividend yield is about 12% and it's trailing PE is 1.6. Uh, New Hope is down about 20% year to date on a trailing dividend yield of about 13 and a trailing P of 3.4. And now this one is, this one is a bit crazy. Yan Coal is down about 20% year to date and it's trading on a tra- trailing dividend yield of 27% and a PE of 1.7. Now with Yan Coal, that said, its free float is under twenty percent, so it does affect the result a little bit. But what do you make of this, and why have you picked coal stocks as the stocks of the week? Well, coal stocks had some pretty big falls this week, uh, and that was on the back of falling coal prices. So uh, I think they reached a peak of around about four hundred dollars a ton 
last year or early this year, it might, might have been, and and they're now back down to around about one hundred and forty dollars mm-hmm. a ton. So, uh, coal stocks copped a, a decent decent battering, um, and I've got Whitehaven coal in my portfolio. Mm-hmm. I bought that, uh, I think, around about the dollar fifty dollar fifty mark. So it's you know it's done done very well. Took some profits on the way, but still holding on to it because I think you know this is really really interesting because traditionally you look at whether it's coal commodity stocks mm-hmm. and when they look cheap you sort of tend to think um well the the the, the way it works in commodities is when when the PEs are really low on commodities then that's when you sell when the PEs yeah. are really high that's when you buy and i think from memory when i bought initially bought and recommended uh whitehaven for my subscribers I, i'm not even sure it had a pe because it was losing money um yeah. So that's when you you buy them because they are such cyclical industries. Now you're looking at, and you you, you had some uh, trailing numbers before. I've got some yeah. forward looking numbers mm-hmm. for for these stocks. Won't give you the numbers for Yan Coal because I think maybe one analyst is covering the yeah. stock, or not even any analysts. It, it just doesn't have much of a free float um, for that to happen. But these are on financial year 2024 numbers for Whitehaven, and they've been. Downgraded forty four percent over the past six months, so the the consensus forecasts have come back considerably. But even so, it's trading on a PE of three point two times. The yield uh, is nine point five percent. It's on a price to book of 0.77 times, and it's got an, a return on equity of nearly twenty five percent. So if you think those numbers are going to be hit, then Whitehaven Coal is, you know, an absolute bargain. It's worth a lot more than what it is now. Um, and if you look at New uh, New Hope, similar um, similar situation. Its EPS forecasts have been downgraded fifty two percent from the peak in September twenty twenty two. So at that time, analysts were forecasting FY twenty four numbers up here, and now mm-hmm. they've um, curtailed them down 52%. But even so, the PE is 4.3 times, the yield 11.4%. It's priced to book of one about one and a half times uh, book, and it's got a return on equity of nearly 37%. So again, very profitable, yeah. very cheap. And using the old rule of commodities, uh, they're sells. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I've got, a, I've got a Peter Lynch quote here for you, just to sort of encapsulates what you were saying. I think in one of his books, he said, buying is cyclical after several years of record earnings. And when the PE ratio has hit a low point is a proven method of losing half of your money in a short period of time. So that's something to consider there. Well, that's he, he, that's <laughs> just been proven with the coal stocks over the past yeah, uh, yeah. You know, six to 12 months. Um, actually, I'll just share my screen and we'll have a look at uh, the charts of some of these coal stocks because I think it um, proves... Peter's point pretty well. Um, yeah. Got Whitehaven Coal here, and mm-hmm. if I look at it's peaked roughly uh, October twenty twenty two, and we've got a share price decline of nearly fifty percent. So there you go. Uh, yeah, Peter was spot on fifty two percent. It's yep. broken through this level of support here, and now it's approaching this next level of support. So. Um, Whitehaven Coal down considerably. Uh, this is New Hope that's broken through this level of support here just this week as well. And what's that down? It's roughly down. 
that's about 36% down. So not quite yeah. at the 50% level, but not far off it. And then Yankol, mm. uh, that's fallen sharply as well, broken through support. Uh, it's down roughly, yeah, again, 36%. So they've all fallen significantly from their from their peaks. Uh, but here's, here's where I would like to offer a, uh, a low probability counter because, you know, arguing against mm. Peter Lynch is clearly stupid. Um, so I don't really want to be too forceful yeah. in my arguments on this. Uh, let me just stop sharing for the moment. Uh, okay, so Whitehaven Coal, New Hope Coal, um, they produce coal. It's a commodity. And yeah. that the share price at the moment is anticipating a fall back to long-term traditional levels, which mm-hmm. on the face of it is probably a smart bet. Uh, where I would like to diverge from that bet is in the consideration of this uh, net zero movement. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, as much as you'd like to say otherwise, I think coal is actually going to be in use more over the next couple of years than not. And I think the predictions are because we are investing so much into renewables, because we are shifting away from coal-fired power in the, de- in, uh, the developed uh, in, uh, economies, mm. therefore coal will be less used. Uh, and I just don't think that is going to happen. And if you look at India and China, especially as the two sort of emerging Mm-hmm. economic sort of powers they are building a huge amount of coal capacity uh, even japan is investing in coal <clears throat> and if you look at germany i think i mentioned this last week i can't remember i've mentioned this in a few different forums so i'm not sure if i'm repeating myself but germany have tried to go or are going off nuclear which mm-hmm. you know is insane but that's what they're doing and in order to continue to have energy security they're restarting their lignite mm-hmm. coal mines which is brown coal now, last year, the reason why coal went to 400 bucks an ounce is because Germany was scrambling to get suppliers and priced out countries like Pakistan and mm-hmm. Bangladesh and all that sort of stuff and just ramped the price up so much to get their suppliers. Mm-hmm. Now, Europe was bailed out because they had a pretty warm or pretty mild winter, so they didn't need a lot of that gas and coal supplies they had built up. Uh, my contention is if you don't get another warm winter in Europe this year or in the in the the winter that we're going to enter into towards the end of this year, then they're going to need to buy more coal. And Mm -hmm. when you look at the demand for coal increasing anyway, from, you know, your, your Indies and China's Mm -hmm. in my mind, coal is going to be structurally higher in price than what it has been in the past cycle. So I'm not sure exactly what that means, where the price sits, like no one can forecast where the price sits. But if I look at, what the shares are pricing in at the moment, mm-hmm. they are pricing in a return to normal cyclical things where, you know, coal miners might lose money for a couple of years in the next yeah. few years. Uh, so what's not priced in is the fact that this move to net zero and the focus on renewables, people aren't realizing that coal is going to play a really, really important role in the next couple of years because renewables just aren't going to do the job. And I know that's probably a controversial uh, comment for a lot of people who who have an ideological belief in in renewables being able to power our cities and, and all that sort of stuff, but it's just not going to happen. Like not until we have some sort of major breakthrough in, in technology, battery storage technology, 
renewables just aren't going to do it. And that means coal will be in demand. But on the other Mm -hmm. side of the coin, you've got Australia, which has got some of the highest quality coal reserves in the world. And, um, you know, it's only relative because coal is pretty bad in terms of its Mm. its polluting impacts. But Australia's got pretty good uh, coal quality, yet it's very difficult to get any more supply out of the ground because Mm -hmm. uh, all the people that, you know, want, wind wind uh wind uh power and solar power to power our economies also don't want any more coal being mined mm. so you've got this sort of supply on the one side sorry increasing demand on the one side lack of new supply on the other side which is to to my mind is going to lead to a structural change in in the coal price in the same way that it'll do it for oil and other fossil fuels so going back to the price uh i looked at the forward estimates mm-hmm. for say free cash flows for whitehaven mm-hmm. coal uh even cutting those in i think i cut those in half so i reduced those by 50 percent, and the the share price looks about fair value at the moment mm-hmm. based on that 50 percent reduction so uh from a share price perspective it's in a downtrend you don't really want to buy into a downtrend unless yeah. you see price hit support and and find support at those levels and Whitehaven for example which I follow a bit more closely than the New Hope uh, is nearing that support so I'm keeping a close eye on that because I think mm-hmm. there's a probably a good buying opportunity uh, if it breaks through support though I probably have to reassess my uh, contrarian take on that and think well you know maybe maybe the structural uh, forces that I'm thinking about aren't you know, aren't there. So um, while the share prices momentum is going against you, you have to sort of keep in mind that you're probably, you're probably wrong, uh, but mm-hmm. also you need to sort of look at where the support's coming in and whether the market might be coming around to your, your view. And uh, if it does, then I think it bottoms pretty soon around here. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we go back to, you know, quite, quite, quite possibly back to uh, close to the all time highs. So, yeah, looking at this as another re-entry opportunity for for Whitehaven in particular. Yeah, well, we can revisit that maybe in a in a year or two and see see how that plays out. We'll certainly revisit it if I'm right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, we'll we'll sweep that under the rug if you're not. No, no, we'll we'll, we'll, ke- we'll keep an eye on it. We'll keep an eye. Yeah, on it. yeah. Uh, and I think um, another stock that you sort of wanted to mention was Bank of Queensland, and I think it hit a 52-week low earlier this week after Austrac and Apro criticized its board for risk management failings um but i think again maybe a, a contrarian take it but you think maybe all of the bad news is already in the price and this could be a buying opportunity um and that's sort of when you mentioned that to me earlier um it reminded me of michael Byrie, and i think people probably know him from the big shot he was played by christian bale um and years ago Byrie had a blog uh, and he wrote in his blog that his strategy was pretty simple. It was, I try to buy shares of unpopular companies when they look like roadkill and then sell them when they've been polished up a bit. So do you think Bank of Queensland right now looks like like a roadkill that can be polished up a bit? Uh, quite possibly, but let's, um, let's have a quick look at the chart just to sort of mm-hmm. give viewers an idea of um, what's happened to it recently. So it's looking pretty ugly there yeah uh, so from the peak which was reached back in october 21 so around about the peak of the the global markets really it's fallen 43 mm-hmm. percent, and it's back down to 
levels it last reached in when it was recovering from the COVID crisis, so back in October 2020. And as you can see there, sort of roughly, a, I wouldn't say it's a strong support level, but it's an interesting level of support where mm -hmm. the buying has started to come in. So from a contrarian perspective, I think it's definitely a stock that you could have a have a look at. Uh, and just on the number, I think that the tricky thing with banks is they are very leveraged businesses, mm -hmm. right? So if there is something wrong with them, it can go pear-shaped really, really quickly. Um, so if I look at the forecasts for Bank of Queensland, and this is just using consensus forecasts for yep. 2024, they've fallen, those, those forecasts have fallen 20% from October. So generally you, you tend to, if, if EPS or earnings per share forecasts uh, fall by 20%, you can, you can essentially look at a share price and say, okay, that's fallen 20% because the earnings have fallen. Here mm -hmm. you've had a share price fall of 40 odd percent while the earnings have only fallen 20% or mm -hmm. the earnings forecast have only fallen 20%. So that means the, multiples on this stock have contracted quite sharply. And if you look at the PE, it's trading on a PE of 8.9 times. It's on a yield of 7.9%. Price to book is only 0.56%. So it's just trading over half of, half of its book value, mm -hmm. but it's only got a return on equity of 6.45%. So it's a pretty, pretty poor return on equity, which suggests like if you compare it to say uh, Commonwealth Bank, I think Commonwealth mm -hmm. Bank's got a forecast return on equity of about maybe... 13 percent or yeah. something like that yeah. so it's nearly twice um twice the level of, of bank of queensland so when i run these numbers and i've got a valuation model that takes into account return on equity takes into account the dividend payout ratio um and also the main thing you've got to put into your model is your discount rate so mm -hmm. just for transparency i put in a a 10 percent 10 percent discount rate for for bank of queensland and essentially that just means that if you're a business owner, if you own this bank uh, and mm -hmm. it doesn't trade on the stock market, then the combination of earnings through dividends or reinvested back into your balance sheet growth should give you 10% a year. And if you want 10% a year, 10% a year, then that will, deter um, that will determine what share price you pay mm -hmm. to get that 10%. So when I put those numbers into my model, it actually comes up to exactly where the share price is at the moment. So what is priced in? What's priced in is a pretty poor earnings outlook for Bank of Queensland. Mm -hmm. And when I say pretty poor, that's assuming a 6.5% return on equity. So if Bank of Queensland can get its act together and increase its ROE back up to, say, 10%, then this is a, mm -hmm. a really good buy at the moment. But if I look at the consensus forecast for the next few years, that's not priced in at all. Yeah. So at the moment as much as you would sort of look at this and say, okay, is this a good contrarian bet? Uh, I would say not, not yet. And what, what I tend to do with these situations is say, look, th these um, moving averages here, this is the 50 day moving average mm -hmm. and the 100 day moving average. When a share price extends well below those moving averages, it can often bounce back up mm -hmm. to them. So when something's in the headlines and it's bad news and everyone's like, mm -hmm. Oh, embarrassed to have, hold this stock in my portfolio. I'm getting out of here. Everyone dumps it. It gets extended and I'll, we'll have a quick look at the um, RSI, which is a bit of a momentum index. It's been oversold mm -hmm. for, for quite some time. It bounced up here a little bit, fallen sharply again. So it's in this oversold region as far as a momentum indicator goes. It's probably due for a bounce. 
Uh, yep. But I would, I would probably want to see this stabilize for a number of months and start to see upward momentum return before I got interested. Because as I said, banks are tricky. Uh, it's in a slowing economy. It's competing against mm -hmm. the big banks with bigger balance sheets. Um, and there could be, you know, a number of headwinds uh, for some time to come for the, for this mm -hmm. stock. So, uh, yeah, contrarian one to put on your watch list, but you'd want to see evidence of uh, stabilization of earnings, certainly a stabilization of the regulatory issues that mm -hmm. it's facing. And and I think with what you just mentioned, the the Austrac and the APRA stuff that's occurred this week, that just suggests that you know maybe management. Uh, aren't particularly razor sharp there in mm. looking at those issues. So you need, you, you want to bank and look, Commonwealth bank trades at a premium to the other banks. Cause mm. I think it's, it's franchise and its management team is so well regarded. And mm -hmm. when you don't have that in a bank, which is a leveraged institution, then that can lead to a, a discount being applied. And I think that's certainly the case. And that'll probably be the case for, for quite some time with bank of Queensland. So, you know, if you want to, if you want to buy it for a, for a lucky bounce and roll the dice, sure. But, uh, you know, it's not uh, based on the outlook. It's certainly not, uh, un, not particularly undervalued at this point. Mm, mm. Yeah. And I think with the, the management comment, you just have to look at Silicon Valley bank and see what, uh, bad management can do to an institution. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well, I think now I'd want to, to move on to a segment that's sort of the, the heart of the show and it's you know the what's not priced in segment and i want to quiz you on what you think is the biggest idea that the markets are maybe overlooking and certainly not pricing in as much as they should um and i think i'd maybe want to start with china and the outlook for commodities in general because definitely we've been getting quite a lot of bad press from china with their sort of softening economy and the macroeconomic readings from china haven't been as strong as expected. So what do you think is being priced in there and what hasn't been priced in there? Yeah, I think that's uh, it's really interesting because for the last couple of months, it's all been about China reopening and they're going to, yep. you know, the demand's going to come from the, the reopening story because that's just what happens when economies reopen. And, and that probably happened to a certain extent, but that has certainly come off the boil in the last few few weeks few months really uh but this week i think it became a little bit more of a more mm. of a story um so perhaps again i'll share my screen and just show some charts on this china story because i think it's um i think it's quite interesting mm -hmm. when you look at some of these correlations so first of all i'm just going to show you the the shanghai composite index now that's actually been holding up okay um mm -hmm. the all-time highs uh back here from february 21 again in september 21 and then a lower high here in december 21 so we've gotten through obviously a decent bear market there mm -hmm. but it's it's holding up reasonably well and if i zoom right out here from oh. way way back when oh. it's sort of holding this long-term trend line which is you know it looks like a reasonable uh, rate of growth so very volatile market um but it, it, it's not it's not a disaster by any means yeah uh, but then if i look at the hang seng index um that's not looking particularly strong at all which effectively is just now an outpost of of, of china um mm -hmm. so that's looking really really weak and this is the Hang Seng China Enterprises Index. Uh, that's obviously quite weak as well. And the fall into the uh, October 
uh, low, which is when global stock markets bottomed. That was quite mm-hmm. sharp. It's bounced from there, but rolling back over again. And really that low goes mm-hmm. all the way back to 2008. So, yep. you know, that is not a good looking chart at all. Um, mm-hmm. And then let's look at some of the commodities. This is the copper price. So copper, uh, well known that it's been under pressure the last couple mm-hmm. of months. And that's sort of, you know, moving into a downtrend there. If I might just zoom in on this, when these moving averages cross over to the downside, it just, in my model, confirms a medium-term downtrend is in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the oil price. This is Brent crude. This has been in a downtrend for, for a significant amount of time. Uh, and this is the, I just need to change. Uh, this is the iron ore price. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been rolling over the last couple of uh, couple of months as well. And then finally, the Aussie dollar, uh, US dollar exchange rate. And mm-hmm. often, you know, traders will see, look at this as a proxy, Australian dollar as a proxy for China, as a proxy for global mm-hmm. growth. And it peaked back in February, mm-hmm. uh, late January, February, and it's been rolling over ever since and starting to head back down towards these lows. So to me, that rally was based on, oh, China's going to reopen, um, good for global growth, all that sort Mm -hmm. of stuff. And then when China did actually reopen, uh, it was clearly in the in the price when Mm -hmm. it was in the news. But when China did reopen, it started to sell off again. And it's now back back down, um, you know, towards those those lows from last year. Just while I'm on it, another couple of charts to show you. This is the iron ore price overlaid mm-hmm. uh, with the Chinese renminbi uh, and the US dollar. So this is the the, the black line here is the uh, yuan US dollar exchange rate, and that's been falling. And you can see the correlation with the mm-hmm. iron ore price there. And there's also a decent correlation between, very good correlation, I should say, between the, uh, the yuan and the copper price. Yeah. Um, now I'm just going to go back to and show you the those correlations are really really strong especially in recent years well they are and i think it just shows you the impact that china has on on certain commodity markets Mm. Uh, but if i look at the momentum index this is called the rsi this is a a short-term short-term momentum indicator and the the chinese yuan has been in the oversold in um Mm -hmm. area for for quite some time for nearly all of May. So to to my mind, so there's two ways to look at this. So it's all been in the news this week, China slowing down, China's problems. Uh, and I think we we even toyed with um, the magazine cover indicator mm-hmm. showing, was it Pig China? Uh, yeah, it was, it was Pig Economist. China. Yeah, The yeah. Economist, yep. Economist magazine had a Pig China magazine article. Uh, so that sort of, from a contrarian perspective, you say, okay, well, maybe it's not all that bad in China. And a lot of this short-term bad news is priced in. So what I'd be looking for in the next couple of weeks is probably a bounce, at least mm-hmm. from these levels. And that would mean a bounce in iron ore prices, a bounce in copper prices, and some money coming back into our, our resources sector. Uh, so I think... Uh, to stick with the the, the premise of the, the segment, what mm-hmm. is priced in is a lot of worry about China and a lot of concern that China's peaked and China's going to slow down and what effect of that is, is that going to have on, on resources. Uh, but what's not priced in is the fact that China might not be all that bad. I mm-hmm. mean, it's still a massive economy. It's still growing. I was listening to a an oil analyst uh, just recently saying that 
even though there are concerns about the China reopening, they are still consuming records amounts of mm. oil. Uh, so I'll just stop sharing that screen. Um, so there is there is a lot of reason to think that you know it's not as bad as what the market is pricing in. One thing from a longer term perspective that is not priced in for commodities is the the push towards net zero. And mm. everyone over the past few months, maybe even longer, has been talking about the need for critical metals, the need for copper, the need for aluminium, the need for all these uh, strategic metals to facilitate this transition to a to a new energy system. None of that is priced in at current mm. prices. And I think the market is very much focused on a short-term outcome and the short-term outcome is a slowing global economy. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Uh, and might've mentioned this in the show last week, but when hedge funds want to hedge against a slowing global economy, they will sell commodities. They will sell industrial yep. commodities. Uh, and when I say sell, they'll sell paper futures mm-hmm. or something like that. So the way that they can get exposure to or, or profit from a global slowdown is to, is to, sell uh, futures and whether that's oil futures or copper futures or Mm. whatever it might be. So it has an effect on these short-term prices, but the underlying physical supply and demand picture is still Mm. quite strong. So what's not priced in is the fact that the economy will recover. The politicians around the world will still go headlong into trying to build new transmission systems Mm. and new energy systems uh, within the next five or 10 years because the world's going to end if they don't. And mm-hmm. none of that is priced in at these levels. So if you've got a longer term view, and when I say longer term, I guess that depends on you know many different definitions mm-hmm. of it. But I would say if your view is one to two years, then yep. buying at these levels probably makes sense. Uh, but having said that, all those uh, commodities are in downtrends and buying into downtrends is always always a risk because they can just continue. Mm-hmm. So I would sort of probably suggest scaling in um, whether you do that sort of on a monthly basis or mm-hmm. whether you just want to wait until you see some price support coming in and, and, and buying in, into the uptrend. But I, I certainly think from a longer term perspective, uh, a lot of that, a lot of the bad news is certainly priced in in the short term, but mm-hmm. from the longer term, all the good news, a lot of the longer term good news isn't priced in. Yeah. And I think for investors, when you see, when you see prices falling so sharply and everyone's sort of saying, oh, the economy is worldwide, it's a gloomy outlook. It, it takes a bit of courage to sort of say, well, on a five-year basis, this is actually a good buying opportunity. So it does take a bit of bit of guts to sort of go, no, this is a, this is a good buying opportunity. I think one of our editors, James Cooper, has, he has been saying that, you know, long-term, especially for copper, this does offer good value at the moment. But I think we'll move on to, to the well, second. Just quickly on, on that one, yep. Kirill. Um, yep. Yesterday, I sent an update out to our mm. uh, alliance members um, who are our readers of, of nearly all our products. And we manage a model portfolio for those readers. And I sent out a, a, a message saying I'm adding two of James's mm. copper producers to the, to the model portfolio purely because copper had been in the news in, in a negative um, aspect for some time. And I thought all that negative is, is probably in the price now. So it's time to add some copper exposure to the portfolio. So mm-hmm. um, it is difficult in Australia because there's not a lot of pure copper yeah. miners here. And uh, but James has dug out a couple of, of smaller ones, ones on the cusp of, of developing 
uh, a project's got a good management team and another one has got a very solid bunch of ground. And as a geologist, mm -hmm. he's covered a lot of their drill results uh, and he's he thinks there's a pretty good, pretty good project there. So we did add a couple of those stocks yesterday as well. Yeah. And if anyone's interested, they can just check out some of James's writing. I think he writes for Fat Tail Commodities. Um, but I think I'll, you know, you spoke about some, something that was negative in the press. I think we've been hearing negative stories for weeks on end about the whole debt ceiling and whether or not the US is going to run out of money. I think in the last few days, that negativity has turned to optimism. Hooray, they've finally done a deal. It looks like it's going to pass the Senate. But I think you were saying that there's actually something that the market is not really looking at, and that's to do with short-term liquidity. And so, yeah, maybe just uh, talk on that. Yeah, so um, what's been happening since since the government hasn't been able to issue more debt mm. is that they've had to run down their savings, I guess. So they've actually had to perform like a household. Yeah. <laughs> they've been constrained. Um, and they hold those savings with the Federal Reserve in an account called the Treasury General Account. Mm -hmm. And that's been uh, run down for, I'll show you a chart in a minute, but essentially the way that works is when the treasury uh, issues notes or bonds or, or whatever into the, into the market, it takes liquidity out of that market and then it either puts that money into the treasury general account or the government just mm -hmm. spends the money straight away. Um, so when the treasury general account is rising, it's taking liquidity out of the market. When it's falling, it's adding liquidity mm -hmm or adding spending back into the economy. So with that in mind, uh, I'll just show you this chart. If I can find it. Yeah, while you find, I'm just going to quickly read something that, um, that Bloomberg wrote. Um, and I think, yeah, the, the concern is that with a tentative deal pending, the treasury will soon replenish its cash balance by selling more than a trillion dollars worth of bills through the end of this third quarter. Uh, and I can think right now the US uh, cash pile currently sits at about only 39 billion. And that's been the lowest since 2017. So there's definitely a gap to fill there. Absolutely. And this chart shows how low the Treasury general account has has gotten um, over the last couple of weeks. And new numbers just came out uh, this morning, actually, I think. So it's it's up to 48, let's say 50 bill, um, but it's very, very low in the context of where it's been. So just to give you an idea, when the, uh, when the sort of corona panic hit, the government started issuing huge amounts of, uh, huge amounts of bills and, and bonds and increased its uh, treasury account balance with the Fed Reserve um, hugely. That acted as a liquidity constraint on the market. But mm -hmm. then when it started to spend that money back into the economy and it ran it all the way back down here. So when did the market peak in, in the US? I think the market peaked in about November, 2021. Mm -hmm. And this decline or this injection of liquidity and spending into the economy, I think was a huge impact on, on that 2021 bubble that we, that we mm -hmm. went through. Um, and then it's increased taking liquidity out of the market again here. So that was throughout the start of 2022 and markets were under the pump during that mm -hmm. stage. And then it's added liquidity and spending back in throughout this time. So what you were talking about then is that now that the government is able to issue debt again and, and increase its uh, debt ceiling, 
it's more than likely going to increase its uh, account balance um, at the at the Federal Reserve again, mm -hmm. which is going to be a liquidity constraint on the market. So it'll be taking liquidity out of the market. Now, depending on how much it takes out, uh, that you know, if it was if it was a few hundred um, billion, it may not be that big a deal. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you're you're seeing uh, banks slow down, you're seeing lending slow down, you're seeing the U.S. economy slow down, then it could have a pretty decent impact. And even though this is sort of reasonably widely known amongst, I guess, financial professionals. I'm not quite sure how much the market has really mm -hmm. priced that in. I don't think the market's really pricing in the impact of a potential liquidity withdrawal on the market over the, um, from the financial markets in the next few months. Um, so that's a, that's a negative uh, to keep your eye on that might, might impact. And, you know, perhaps it impacts the, the large stocks that have been benefiting the most from mm. from liquidity over the past few months. Yeah, and I think another a final big story that's not priced in and sort of sort of relates to this is um, a threat to corporate earnings. Uh, and you know, I think you're of the opinion that the market isn't really pricing in a recessionary hit to to profits and what that might do to um, forward multiples. Uh, so yep. yeah, maybe you can talk about that as well. Yeah, so I looked at, um, and this goes back to the conversation we had earlier about the index versus individual stocks. So this, yep. these are EPS forecasts or earnings per share forecasts for the S&P 500 as a whole. Hmm. And as you pointed out, there's probably about 10 of those stocks that are probably doing well and 490 odd are, are struggling. So these EPS forecasts are wrapped up amongst yep. 500 stocks and you know maybe it's just a small amount of them contributing to this. But in general... The consensus forecasts suggest that earnings for the S&P 500 as a collective group, operating earnings, will bottom in the current quarter that we're mm -hmm. in. So they'll bottom uh, you know, in the, the June quarter and they're going to start growing again from Q3. So um, at the moment, there's the uh, EPS forecasts are suggesting a 5.8% quarter on quarter increase mm -hmm. in earnings in, in Q3 and a 3.1% incre increase for Q4 on Q3 earnings. So we're bottoming now and we're going to come mm -hmm. out of this. And, and earnings have been falling in terms of growth and have actually gone negative um, recently for nearly the past 12 months. So the market mm -hmm. is pricing in a recovery in earnings um, starting from around now into, into, uh, into the second half of this year. And then in 2024, over the course of that year, EPS growth is forecast at 11.4%. Okay. Um, so in my mind, given the lagged effect of monetary policy, that what's not really priced into those earnings is the fact that the Fed is going to keep rates high mm -hmm. and that lagged impact of tighter monetary policy is going to continue to, to flow through and impact impact the market well beyond this quarter and, and probably into, into 2024. Uh, and you have a market pricing in, what is it? I think the the PE is about eighteen point six times mm -hmm. um, on on forward earnings, so it's not cheap. Mm -hmm. And if the earnings recession is continued, and you see company and you see analysts downgrading earnings from from here, I think the market struggles to struggles to stay where it is. And I'm not so I don't think the market's pricing in this lagged impact of monetary policy and the fact that it is going to have an impact on. Uh, 
on company earnings for for mm. you know longer than the next couple of months. Yeah. Do you think that the market is sort of almost priced to perfection right now, and then anything it doesn't even take would take a disappointing result, like a tiny disappointing result, to sort of topple the whole thing down? Yeah. Well, certainly the tech um, the tech titans are priced for for protection uh, protection <laughs> protection no they're not priced for protection um yeah so a- any anything that comes out of left field on that front mm. could could lead to you know a significant significant sell-off and in those charts remember from last week's show i showed you those charts where mm. you have um tech stocks having going into a bubble they sell off and then they they react again and get towards those mm. all-time highs before selling off again you know, I think that's a potential impact that that, that can happen. Um, and just to give you a, a, a sense of how much that is in the price in the community, um, my daughter plays tennis. I took her to a tennis lesson last week, uh, and the coach asked me. Uh, he drives a Tesla, and he said, <laughs> um, "He said my Tesla shares are getting getting better. Uh, they had a terrible year last year." And I said, "Oh yeah, I know." But I, I didn't want to tell him how terribly overvalued they yeah. they remain. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But he also sort of said, uh, do you use AI at work? Um, okay. And, and so, you know, um, it's, it's you know, the equivalent of the, the taxi driver mentioning. mentioning yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, yep. Yeah. So I thought, yeah, I, I don't know how much better this, this can get. And going back to what we're talking about with the EPS earnings, I'm not sure given that we've got high interest rates, we haven't talked about mm. real yields. We can maybe do a show on real yields um, yep. in, in the future because they, they do have a big impact on, on how all this stuff's priced. Real yields are still quite high, mm. um, which just tells you, you know, financial markets are tight, monetary conditions are tight. And, uh, you know, if these companies do continue to grow earnings, then they're taking their earnings off someone else mm. rather than, you know, being a part of a ever growing pie. I think the pie's mm. the pie's shrinking a little bit, and there's a fair bit of fighting going on about who gets what in that pie. So, but the S and P five hundred is a pie, and that pie is shrinking. So, um, I think that's not priced in. Yeah, well, definitely. If your tennis coach is talking about AI, you definitely should conclude it's priced in. That's yeah. I think so. It'd be a fair assumption. Yeah. yeah, and I think with the um, those consensus estimates, I was actually looking at. Um, some research a few years ago by GMO, they published a, a quarterly about price to sales. And historically, stocks that have uh, price to sales of over 10 uh, have actually underperformed the market. And I think with stocks like NVIDIA, it's price to sales is probably over 25. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, that said, I think that research did conclude that on average, most stocks that are trading over 10 uh, PS have underperformed, but there are some exceptions. So yeah. the AI bulls will probably say, well, NVIDIA is one of them. It's going to be selling. Well, if, if you're long, you always hope there's an exception. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it, go, it goes back to what we were saying uh, last week about it's just so hard to maintain huge returns on capital and be able to reinvest and compound that, that those mm. returns beyond a few years because they just get competed away. I mean, mm. you know, unless unless these companies are genuinely monopolistic in, in, in almost a natural monopoly and that they've built a network, it's too hard for competitors to catch up because they have to do 20 years of research and investment in order to catch up. So unless they've built out these natural monopolies that can't be competed away, then you're right. You know, you're going to underperform buying at, mm. buying at these levels. Yeah. 
and I think with you know a stock like Nvidia, it's it's still you know it's a same it's selling chips, and it, it that is a bit cyclical. In all of those semiconductor companies have gone through massive peaks and also massive troughs, so that's that's something to keep in mind. But yep. I think I think for me that's that's been very useful. I think that probably wraps up everything we've wanted to say. We've gone over an hour, but maybe I would just want to ask you any final takeaways that you want the viewers to have. What's the well, biggest you know what thing like, that's on price then? <laughs> yep. You know what I'd like to show? Um, there was a couple of charts that I had yep. based on your comments earlier about the uh, about the concentration uh, mm -hmm. of the US market. So there's just a couple of charts here I want to quickly show to take away. This is the uh, advanced decline line. Um, it's actually the advanced decline volume line. Mm -hmm. So it takes the number of advancing stocks and the volume of those stocks um, versus relative to the number of uh, declining stocks with the, the volume included. And generally, that should be track, track the S&P mm -hmm. 500. Mm -hmm. And as you've seen in the last couple of months, so um, roughly um, this would have been the sort of March panic with the uh, Silicon Bank um, mm -hmm. issue. Um, you've seen that breakaway and the advanced decline. So the number of stocks actually falling and now starting to outpace the number of stocks that are, that are rising. Uh, and the S&P 500 continues to march higher. So that's often that's a, a that's huge sign of divergence. Yeah. yeah, it's a sign of divergence and that's a warning sign to say that, you know, how long can this this continue before it catches up with the rest of the the internal market that's uh, that's indicated by this line. Second just chart, briefly, could, has the, mm -hmm. oh, sorry, with that first chart, how, when, when has that diverged like that historically? Has that ever happened before? If we can extend oh, that I'm, graph I'm sure. further out. I'm sure it has, but when you graph it further out, because ah, okay. the, the scales are so different, uh, it, yeah. it, it moves. So you need to you need to graph them yeah. in. I, I guess probably you know a couple of year uh, segments. Mm. Um, so, but yeah, look, at th these things happen from time to time, um, and it and it doesn't always mean there's going to be a crash, but it just means that it might be a catch up to to where the rest of the market is. Similar situation for this chart. This shows the number of stocks in the S&P 500 that are above their 200-day moving average. Uh, and mm -hmm. again, it's a pretty decent correlation with the S&P 500, which is in red. Mm -hmm. So you could say from this that the internals of the market peaked uh, in on the 2nd of February. Now, if you remember back to that Aussie dollar chart I showed you, that also peaked in, mm -hmm. February, in early February, late January. So there's a lot of correlations here to suggest that this was roughly as good as it got for the global economy. And then stocks started to sell off from here. And it's, you know, um, the number of stocks that are above their 200-day moving average in the S&P 500 are declining while the S&P 500 continues to hold up. And the last chart I wanted to show is this is the NASDAQ, which is a small bank index, shows mm -hmm. a lot of regional banks. Obviously, that was the Silicon Valley crash. Um, but up until then, the S&P 500 has tracked mm. this small bank yeah. index pretty closely. And that, to me, suggests that, you know, small banks are the credit creators, uh, the small business, they provide credit to small businesses in the US, and they're very well correlated to the economic situation in the US. Mm. And the S&P 500 generally follows that. But since that's happened and the, and the money's rushed into tech, we've seen another divergence there. So... Um, yeah, I just thought they were interesting charts to leave you with to, to sort of back up the point that you made that this concentration mm. in the market has got to a point where you probably need to be a little bit concerned. But on the other side, uh, if you're invested in stocks that have got, you know, 
are not tech and, and are not really related to those big concentrations, um, you, you should be okay, apart from the fact that, you know, it will impact sentiment. If the S&P 500 falls 10%, then the Aussie market's right. going to fall as well. But it's not necessarily going to impact the intrinsic value of a lot of these other stocks that have nothing to do with concentration or money money mm-hmm. piling into ETFs and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah those charts were, were fantastic. Um, and yeah, I think what you were just saying, it's again, I'll repeat it because it's, it's worth repeating. It's, it's always a market of stocks, not a stock market. And always ask Absolutely. yourself what's not priced in. <laughs> but um, I think, uh, yeah, what were you going to say? No, nothing. I was just going to say we have been uh, we have been rambling on for a little while now, so um, we probably should say thanks for listening. And, yeah, thank uh, you for listening. Make sure to, to like weekend. and subscribe. Yep, and leave any comments, leave anything that you maybe want us to discuss, and maybe that should be the motto of the show. Remember to always ask what's not priced in. Exactly. Nice one. Thanks for joining. What's not priced in? Your weekly source of unique ideas in the Australian stock market. If you've enjoyed this episode, please show your support by following us on your chosen platform and turn those post notifications on so you don't miss a thing. And uh, stay tuned for the upcoming episodes as we delve into new topics, new trends and new stocks. Thanks for your support. Hope to see you next week.